Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Monday, March 12th, and we're doing something a little different this week. I'm Friday host Dylan Lewis, and I'm at South by Southwest with some other fools attending sessions and meeting with folks to get great stuff for you, our listeners. To kick things off for South by Southwest week, we're going to air an interview with Jesse Isinger. He's a senior reporter and editor at ProPublica and the author of The Chicken S Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. We talked about how the Justice Department handles white-collar crime, the historical events that shape that policy, and the lesson for investors in all of it. But we kicked things off with Jesse explaining the curious title of his book, which we censored for the podcast. It comes from a speech given by a guy named Jim Comey. Maybe uh, <laughs> some people have heard bell. of him. Yeah. Uh, so back in 2002, he was became the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York, and the Southern District of New York is the most important office of the 94 offices of the Department of Justice around the country, including Washington D.C. And the way you know that it's the most important is you ask anybody who's come from there, and they'll tell you. Um, and uh, they're sort of the hot shots. And he gives a speech to the criminal prosecutors there and he says I want to know you know, how many of you guys have never lost a case and a bunch of hands shoot up because they're so proud of their trial record and being undefeated and he says well me and my buddies have a name for you guys you're the chicken <laughs> club and everybody uh, sort of there's that their cringe hands right yeah what, what the hell is he talking about well what he goes on to say is you're not about accumulating a winning record your job is to do justice and justice requires ambitious cases and um, what the argument of the book is is that the Justice Department writ large becomes the chicken ass club um, that they do not know how to prosecute we've lost the will and ability to prosecute top corporate executives from the biggest companies in America, and that this is a big problem for our justice system. And the stat that really frames all of that for me, and I think it's kind of the perfect lead into the book where you use it, uh, is the Wall Street Journal analysis of, I believe it's 146, maybe 156 cases, yeah. uh, uh, criminal and civil cases involving uh, the top 10 biggest banks of Wall Street. And they say, you know, it's like 80, 81%, there was no individual identified or charged. And the remaining ones, save for one, uh, they were all mid and low level employees. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, that's the jumping off point for the book is that, you know, uh, pe most people know, you know, there were no top bankers prosecuted in the wake of the financial crisis, the biggest financial crisis in the in generations since the Great Depression, um, immiserating millions of people, people thrown out of their homes, they lost jobs. And uh, the government said, well, there were no crimes committed um, or there were no crimes committed by individuals, just the sort of corporate entities. And they're going to write checks to make these things go away. There was only one guy, a kind of slightly high level CSFB uh, Credit Suisse First Boston um, banker who was prosecuted criminally and went to prison for actions related to the financial crisis. And so I was really outraged by this um, and troubled and puzzled by it. I thought it was a complete mystery. I couldn't understand how this could be true, how this could be possible. Was it really that there were no crimes committed? I believe there were crimes committed, and I think that they were not investigated properly and not prosecuted because of this drop in the will and ability, but it goes beyond the banks. And it turns out it was building before the financial crisis and persists to today, uh, 10 years after, and doesn't just affect the banks, but in, uh, affects uh, top executives from industrial companies and tech companies, pharmaceutical companies, retailers. We do not know how to do this all, all throughout large corporate America. 
And this isn't something that was always the case. You know, you, you go back to the decades before the financial crisis, and as you lay out in the book, there are plenty of examples where, where this happens. So where does that failure come in? Yeah, this is something we used to know how to do, and it's not that hard to do, um, but we don't know how to do it anymore. And it's never been a golden age. We've never really had perfect um, prosecution of very rich and powerful people. Um, you know, But uh, we have had waves where we've done it, and the most recent one was in the wake of the, uh, you know, right here in Texas, the Enron prosecutions. Uh, but the wave of prosecutions in the wake of the 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s pandemic, of course, corporate fraud, accounting fraud, um, Enron, WorldCom, Adelphia, Global Crossing, Tyco, where they prosecuted almost all the top executives from almost all the biggest, uh, the big companies that were involved in those frauds. And, uh, and then there was a huge backlash. Uh, and then there was a huge campaign to depict those prosecutions as excessive, that the prosecutors were cowboys, that they were um, criminalizing aggressive business tactics. Uh, and that was led by corporations themselves and led by the white collar defense bar. And it was an incredibly effective campaign. And it was done on the political level. So there were, um, it was kind of below the, the radar uh, efforts in Congress and efforts to lobby the Department of Justice. And then there were, um, a kind of concerted effort in the courts to uh, roll back some of these um, prosecutions and to kind of give white-collar defendants more rights. And the courts have been extremely friendly uh, to white-collar defendants, very punitive about street criminals. Um, I think most of your listeners understand that there's a, a two-tier justice system in this country, that we um, excessively punish a certain class of people, disproportionately poor, disproportionately people of color, uh, often for nonviolent offenses. But this is the flip side of that, which is that there is a class um, of wealthy and powerful people in this country who have impunity to commit crimes. And it's been given to them by the courts and been given to them by the white collar defense bar um, and by corporate lobbying and um, acceded to by the Department of Justice who have really rolled over. Yeah, I think as a reader, that's that's one of the maddening things about reading the book is, you know, I'm following along the story of Enron and DOJ's approach there. And you get to the point where they're examining Arthur Anderson very early on. And you think this is going to be a watershed moment. You know, this is going to be a turning point in how these cases are handled. And in fact, the exact opposite happens. It is a turning point. <laughs> it's just a turning point in the opposite direction. Exactly. Um, what happens is Arthur Anderson has to die so that other companies can uh, live free with, without the threat of prosecution. Um, what ha Arthur Anderson is the handmaiden to Enron's accounting fraud, and they prosecute the company and they succeed. But what happens is there's an extraordinary PR victory where they... Uh, lobby on behalf of Anderson to depict it as this egregious case of prosecutorial excess and that there were there were terrible collateral consequences from the Anderson um, prosecution because tens of thousands of workers were thrown out of work. Innocent workers were thrown out of work. And if there's one thing that I can do in my book to succeed in my book is to rehabilitate this prosecution and say, actually, this prosecution needed to happen because Anderson was a corrupt entity that was abetting accounting fraud at multiple companies and really um, deserved prosecution. And when the government tried to settle with them, 
they refused to admit any wrongdoing. They did not want to cop to having done anything wrong at all, even though they had done terrible things. And so the, the government had no choice but to prosecute them. But what the lesson is, that is learned from the Anderson case from not just Republicans and not just defense bar attorneys, but from Democrats, people who Obama installs to head up the Justice Department, head up the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, is that that was excessive and you can't prosecute a large company anymore. So what happens is, over the last 15 years, 16 years, we've taken off the table prosecuting a large company, um, not through actually explicit policy, but effectively we've done that. And they've turned away from prosecuting, focusing on investigating, prosecuting individuals, especially the high-level individuals at corporations. So what's left is settlements with corporations, settlements where they write a check and make the charges go away. And it's a broken regime. It just doesn't work. Yeah, there's this line in the book, I believe someone says that these settlements are just the price of doing business. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I ran into Michael Chertoff here at uh, South by South West. He was the head of the criminal division under George W. Bush, under John Ashcroft. Um, and somebody said that to him about the Arthur Anderson case. Um, Chertoff said, well, why are you so worried about us when we want to just have you admit wrongdoing and you're not worried about the SEC and a fine from them? And he says, well, it's just a cost of doing business. And that's what companies think of. And they, in fact, think of it today. You know, So even when J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs um, pay billions of dollars to settle for uh, allegations that they did things wrong in the mortgage securities markets, um, which, of course, they did. Uh, and even when they sort of slightly admit it, they're just writing a check and the charges go away. They're happy to do that. They're paying with shareholder money. And often the stock goes up after that. It is just a cost of doing business. And therefore, it doesn't work. And what I mean by it doesn't work is we see recidivist corporations. We see corporations paying fines or getting into trouble with regulators and then committing wrong doing again and again and again and the list goes on and on Pfizer Wells Fargo um, you know BP Goldman Sachs JP Morgan you see these companies um, committing wrongdoing over and over again because they're recidivists and we don't deter corporate crime with settlements so in your view is the fix to have corporate crime be treated as a criminal offense and have people held accountable? Yes. The the fix is to focus on individuals, to do many fewer cases and focus on individual accountability because I think if you prosecute one CEO, that has the effect of 20, 25, 50 settlements with corporations for money. Um, these You can deter corporate crime because CEOs are have a big stake in society. They want to protect their reputations. They're wealthy. Um, they have families, and they pay attention to the news. Um, so if one of their colleagues is uh, getting prosecuted, they know about it, and you can send a message that way. So the first step is to recognizing that they have a problem. The Department of Justice really needs to you know, go to AA for uh, corporate prosecutions and um, recognize they have a problem, and then they need to refocus on individual prosecutions and figure out how to do that. It's not easy. It's not an easy job. I don't envy corporate, um, you know, white collar prosecutors, but, you know, they did sign up for this. Uh, I'm sorry that your job isn't easy, but that's what you need to do. Yeah, it's it, your example here kind of reminds me of the approach that uh, the music industry had when people were illegally downloading music, where it's like, if you make the example of one kid downloading a ton of stuff and, and really kind of drag them through the mud, that's going to prevent a lot of people from doing that kind of stuff. And yeah. it, it's that same type of uh, kind of press and 
notoriety that comes with all of that type of stuff maybe discouraging people from doing it down the road yeah i mean maybe that was uh <laughs> maybe that poor kid uh, didn't deserve it but i do think that there are ceos who do deserve this kind of focus so i imagine in doing this type of reporting uh there were probably a lot of people that weren't too thrilled <laughs> that, that you were writing about this topic yeah. can you talk about some of the challenges in researching the topic and in getting people to talk about it Sure. Well, you know, um, lawyers like to talk. So this has not been the most difficult um, exercise in reporting that I've ever had. And I, uh, you know, I'm an investigative reporter. So I, my job is basically getting people to talk about stuff either that they shouldn't talk about or that other people don't want them to talk about. I'm definitely not a popular guy at the Justice Department. Um, and uh, there are a lot of Obama officials who really don't like me. And Preet Bharara, the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District, I, I think that he's not a big fan of mine. Um, but I'm very lucky in that I am a reporter who is paid to not worry if I'm pissing people off. Um, and in fact, if you're an investigative reporter and I try to, I'm modeling this behavior for Eric Holder and Lanny Brewer and Preparar, I'm trying to hold them accountable because I want people to hold individuals accountable. So I do name names in the book. And uh, fortunately, you know, uh, I'm lucky that it gets me invited to South by Southwest. Uh, you know, there are a lot of corporate criminals also uh, um, giving presentations uh, <laughs> at the same time that I'm giving presentation, but um, mine. But, uh, you know, uh, it so far hasn't really hurt my career. We'll see. <laughs> Um, so you've written this book, and for people that are interested in the topic, I think it's an amazing place to start. Yeah. Um, for people that kind you of know, it's it's an even a fascinating <laughs> thing for people who are not necessarily think that they're not interested. In that. There's a lot of storytelling. I've been working my way yeah, through characters, it, and, and I Good. love it. Uh, uh, excellent. Um, Thank you. Um, <laughs> but for people, we have a lot of people who read company conference calls, uh, you know, go through company financials, yeah. and like doing their own research. If you're interested in learning more about what's going on in the space and really staying up to date. Aside from reading your book, yeah. what would you recommend? Um, you mean uh, what kinds of prosecutions are going on mm -hmm. now? Um, you know, obviously, you need to pay attention to what the SEC, the kinds of fines that they're um, giving. You have to read that. Um, and then there are a lot of uh, good reporters who report on the incremental developments um, at Bloomberg and Reuters uh, for these kinds of things. But there's very little that kind of gets in-depth into these investigations that's not glorifying the prosecutors. Basically, what happens is the way this reporting works is um, the defense bar leaks a lot of information about their clients, and obviously that's to make them their clients look good and other people are targeted to look bad. And then prosecutors um, orchestrate a lot of this stuff. So you know when they do a they do an arrest of, at 5 a.m. of uh, some kind of hedge fund manager for insider trading. It just so happens that a Wall Street Journal reporter is going to be there right at the time. Amazing coincidence that that reporter was walking down the street at that time. Um, so, you know, that's all kind of orchestrated, um, and it makes the prosecutors look good, and then they get their stipple drawing on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and then they get to parlay that into... Um, uh, a nice partnership at a big law firm after their their few years at the Department of Justice. So that's uh, unfortunately a corrupt system that they um, that the reporters are playing into, and we should be a lot more skeptical about um, these prosecutions and uh, how valuable they are to society and uh, and what they're not looking at. Um, so we should you know get ahead of prosecutors rather than kind of taking their handouts. Looking out at 
everything that's out there that you could be working on <laughs> investigative reporting yeah you know uh, this this book is done I, I know it's something that you're very passionate about what's the next thing for you what's the next topic that you're really really well, interested in um i mean there are a couple things one is that uh the press does a decent job in covering business um uh, banking and the tech stuff over the last you know first there used to be terrible coverage of tech which was all very adulatory and celebration celebrating these guys as um the most brilliant people since john d rockefeller and we, we might be partially guilty um, of that <laughs> uh the whole tech industry it cover you know tech media is, is guilty of that but there's kind of waking up um, to this so people are waking up to giving um, to Facebook's malign um, uh, you know aspects and um, the damage that society that comes from society from Facebook or Google and concerns about corporate uh, concentration and look at Uber Uber was a, running amok as a kind of serial um, abuser of norms and regulations so I think the tech industry is doing uh, the tech media is doing a better job of covering this now um, and banking certainly the reporters doing better job since the financial crisis what is being totally forgotten is any kind of accountability of almost every other industry so that is a crisis that reporters need to rise to the occasion to cover um, the kind of what derisively the coasts will call the flyover states and the flyover industries you know retail and industrial companies and pharmaceutical companies and the kinds of uh, abuses there um, really need to be focused on. And if they're not, we're going to have, it's in the interests of in investors. Um, shareholders need true information. Um, so this is not just, it's not kind of um, liberal kind of pie in the sky thinking that we should expose wrongdoing for wrongdoing's sake. There's actually utility to it. Um, and in fact, in my book, you see Republicans, old law and order Republicans, really wanting to prosecute corporate criminals because that makes capitalism safer. Um, and they really are offended by bad capitalists. Well, the media needs to focus on bad capitalists because without that, the system is corroded. Bad capitalists compromise the, the trust that investors have in the system, right? Exactly. You exactly. can't safely put money into something that you're not sure is going to be there. Yeah, and so without regulation, without enforcement, um, we are going to get an orgy of corporate crime, and that's going to end up being very, very bad for shareholders. And, you know, shareholders are extremely short-term oriented, and so they think, um, to the extent they think about this now, they think, you know, maybe they'll benefit from a company that's really aggressive and uh, cutting corners, and if they're uh, and they're happy to look the other way if they're committing um, wrongdoing or crime. But uh, in fact, in the end, it's going to hurt them. Yeah, I think to to shoehorn a slight investing takeaway here because I think that's something our listeners might be interested in. Yeah. The the recidivism element of things was what I really took away from reading the book, and the idea that it's really hard to change culture. When, when it's been instilled in a business and it's kind of cutting corners or, or making numbers and that's priority number one. Um, you, you talk about how there's some other businesses, uh, a, a lot of industries that need to be kind of put on watch for this right now. I mean, is, is there anyone that you're kind of watching that, <laughs> that you know, is, is particularly interesting for you or any coverage that people should be looking out for over the next couple months? Well, I, you know, I, I've actually been focused on uh, regulatory rollback in the Trump administration now for the last year or so, so I haven't been looking at 
businesses as much. Um, but you know what I would say is that you look at um, a stock market that is pretty healthily priced, um, uh, and you look at uh, corporate profits that are at a high. Uh, this is kind of an economy and market that's priced for everything going right. It's uh, the expansion is long in the tooth. The bull market is long in the tooth, and um, at these points, this is when people slight get slightly desperate and start to cut corners and investors don't care about this until they care um, and so if you're a smart investor you have to be cognizant of this stuff and look at for the hallmarks of fraud and um, and pay attention you know short sellers are few and far between because they've been crushed for so many years and research uh, research and negative research into companies doesn't pay so the researchers are um, few and far between too and so there's less good information out there um, that's gonna hurt uh, investors and in, uh, at some point you can never know when but it's gonna hurt them I have one last question for you and this is a writing question it's something that comes up in the book and I have to put it to you you have two people in the book having this fierce debate about the split infinitive <laughs> <laughs> what is your opinion on the split infinitive I, you definitely should split infinitives whenever you can yes everything else anything that doesn't sound good to your ear should be eliminated irrespective of whether it's supposedly good grammar or not <laughs> that's awesome. That's some great economic advice, some great financial <laughs> advice, and some great writing advice. Uh, Jesse Isaacer, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that chat. If you want to keep up to date with Jesse Isinger's coverage, you can follow him on Twitter at IsingerJ. There's plenty more awesome South by Southwest coverage coming your way this week on Industry Focus, Market Foolery, and Motley Fool Money. Expect updates on healthcare, esports, media, smart home, and autonomous driving, just to name a few. As a reminder, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on the show. Thanks to Dan Boyd for handling all the production on today's episode, and Fool on! Fool on!